0: This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash free books to download this book in PDF format. By This Standard The Authority of God's Law Today By Greg L. Bonson Published by the Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas Copyright 1985 Chapter 26 Crime and Punishment Quote If some ruler thought that stealing two pennies deserved death, while killing an innocent child deserved the fine of two cents, many Christian teachers would have no objective way to demonstrate the injustice of this arrangement. Scripture has taught us that a distinctively Christian approach to political morality calls for recognition of the civil magistrate's obligation to rule according to the dictates of God's revealed law. We have likewise observed that the key function of the civil magistrate as God himself presents it in his written word, is that of bearing the sword as an avenger of wrath against evildoers. Civil rule is a ministry of justice aiming to punish criminals in accord with the revealed will of God. When we combine this connection with the biblically based belief that God's law is binding in every detail until and unless the lawgiver reveals otherwise, we come to the conclusion that the civil magistrate today ought to apply the penal sanctions of the Old Testament law to criminals in our society, once they have been duly tried and convicted by adequate evidence. Thieves should be made to offer restitution, rapists should be executed, perjurers should suffer the penalty they would have inflicted on the accused, etc. Quite simply, civil magistrates ought to mete out the punishment which God has prescribed in his word. When one stops to reflect on this proposition, it has an all-too-obvious truthfulness and justice about it. Quote, "...shall not the judge of all the earth do right?" End quote. Genesis 18.25 If civil magistrates are indeed ministers of God who avenge his wrath against evildoers, who better would know what kind and degree of punishment is appropriate for every crime than the Lord? And where would he make this standard of justice known but in his word? The penal sanctions for crime should be those revealed in the law of the Lord. That makes perfectly good sense. The Necessity, Equity, and Agency of Punishment God has not only laid down certain stipulations for how people should live in society together, for example, forbidding stealing. He has also backed up those stipulations, rendering them more serious than divine recommendations, with penal sanctions to be imposed on those who disobey his dictates, for example, offering restitution. A law without such supporting penalties would not be a law at all. Now, in the case of certain Old Testament commandments, there was laid down a dual sanction against the offender. A murderer, for instance, would not only undergo the eternal wrath of God after his death, but he would also need to undergo the temporal and social penalty which God prescribed for the civil magistrate to apply, in this case, the death penalty. Not all of God's commandments carried this dual sanction, for not all sins are likewise crimes within the state. It is wicked to lust after a woman, but the civil magistrate can neither convict nor punish for lust. When lust becomes adultery, however then God has stipulated certain measures to be taken by his ordained deputy in the state. Where God has prescribed it in his word, such civil punishments for crime are quite necessary. Indeed, Paul can say that the law of God was enacted precisely for dealing with public criminals, murderers, perjurers, homosexuals, and the like. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8-10 through 10. The destruction of the wicked is a proper goal of a godly magistrate. Psalm 101, verse 8 so that he may root out all evil. For example Deuteronomy chapter seventeen verse twelve and chapter nineteen verse nineteen. And protect the righteous of the land. Psalm one twenty five three Proverbs twelve twenty one. Such civil penalties against crime are to be executed without mercy or pity to the criminal. Deuteronomy nineteen thirteen and verse twenty one. Deuteronomy twenty five twelve, Hebrews ten twenty eight. Lest judges become respecters of persons looking upon the face of criminals and deciding according to some standard other than strict justice who should pay the price of his wrongdoing besides when judges let proven criminals go unpunished they in effect punish those who have been wronged by the criminal in the first place as luther once wrote if god will have wrath what business do you have being merciful What a fine mercy to me it would be to have mercy on the thief and murderer and let him kill, abuse, and rob me, So scripture teaches that civil penalties are necessary. The magistrate is not to carry his sword in vain. Not only are such penal sanctions necessary in society, they must also be equitable. The measure of punishment according to the just judge of all the earth is to be an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life, no less but no more. For example, Exodus chapter 21, verses 23 through 25 and Deuteronomy nineteen twenty-one. The punishment must be commensurate with the crime, for it is to express retribution against the offender. Especially when one compares the biblical code of penal sanctions with those in other ancient civilizations, does it become apparent how just and wise God's laws are. They are never outweighted, lenient, cruel, or unusual. Far from being arbitrary, they are laid down with a view to perfect justice in social affairs. Indirectly, these penal sanctions will become a deterrent to crime in others. For example, Deuteronomy 17.13 and 19.20. But they are designed to punish a person retributively. Quote, according to his fault. End quote. Deuteronomy 25.2 That is why, for instance, those who commit capital crimes are said in the Bible to have committed a sin worthy of death. Deuteronomy 21.22 God always prescribes exactly what a crime deserves. The stringency of the penalty is proportioned to the heinousness of the deed. His punishments are thus always equitable. The agency which God enlists for executing his just and necessary penalties in society for crimes is the civil magistrate. The reason why, by men, the blood of offenders may be shed is given in Genesis 9, verses 5 and 6, namely because man was created in the image of God. Man can reflect the judgments of God against criminals because men, those appointed to this task, are the image of God, able to understand and apply his standards of civic rectitude. Paul described the civil magistrate as ordained by God, one who bears not the sword in vain because he is a minister of God, an avenger for wrath against evildoers, Romans 13 verses 1-4. Without such authorization, the punishment of one man by another would be pure presumption, the perpetration by one group of a misdeed against another individual or group. The very notion of public justice, the right surpassing considerations of might, is rooted in the assumption that God's direction stands behind the function of the civil magistrate in society. Given that fact, it is only natural that the standard by which the magistrate should mete out penalties to criminals ought to be the revealed law of God unwillingness to endorse the law. Yet not all Christian teachers are willing to grant that point. Those who deny the validity of the penal sanctions found in the revealed law of God, however, rarely have cogent and clear alternatives to offer. When they do, these alternatives rarely stem from a Christian standpoint. Moreover, those advocating criminal penalties apart from God's revealed law hardly ever show a willingness to stand behind or defend the fairness and justice of their specific proposals, In short, those who demur at the idea of having a current-day magistrate follow the penal sanctions of God's law usually leave us with the position that there are no permanently just standards of punishment, for magistrates are left to themselves to devise their own penal codes autonomously. If some ruler thought that stealing two pennies deserved death, while killing an innocent child deserved the fine of two pennies, many Christian teachers would have no objective way to demonstrate the injustice of this arrangement. Their failure to produce a God-glorifying, scripturally-anchored method of knowing what justice demands in particular cases of criminal activity would in principle leave us at the mercy of magistrate despots. When there is no law above the civil law, restraining and guiding its dictates, then human will becomes absolute and fearsome. Before any reader is tempted to turn away from the all-too-obvious proposition that God's revealed law should be followed by the civil magistrate when it comes to crime and punishment, Let the reader be clear in his or her own mind just what the alternatives are. In many cases, those who criticize the use of God's penal sanctions, objectively known from the scriptures, have either no alternative or arbitrary tyranny to offer in its place. In addition to asking for the alternative which the critic of God's law has in mind, the reader should make a point of requesting some justifying evidence from scripture for this rejection of the Old Testament law's penal sanctions. This is highly important for Jesus warned that anyone who taught the breaking of even the least commandment of the Old Testament and the penal commandments are surely commandments found among the law and prophets would be called least in the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 5, verses 18 and 19. Unless those who advocate the abolition of these penal sanctions can offer justification for their attitude from the word of God and their position comes under the heavy censure of Christ himself. Moreover, Paul taught that the law of God was lawfully used to restrain criminals today, being the standard God expected his ministers in the state to use when they wielded their swords. 1 Timothy 1, verses 8-10, Romans 13, verse 4. To reject those standards would appear on the face of it to be speaking against the word of the Lord himself on the subject. Are the penalties culturally variable? What reason might someone offer for refusing to endorse the present applicability of the penal sanctions of God's law? It is sometimes suggested, without due reflection, that since the penal sanctions of the law are found among the case laws of the Old Testament, laws whose cultural details are not universally binding, these laws simply teach us that certain crimes should be punished, but not what the punishment should be. Therefore, quote, you shall not allow a sorceress to live, end quote, and quote, quote, whosoever lies with a beast shall surely be put to death, end quote, Exodus 22 verses 18 and 19, Simply teach that those who practice witchcraft or bestiality should be punished in some way, not that they must be punished in a particular way. The underlying principle is alleged to be merely that these acts are punishable. The death penalty is but a variable, cultural detail. As attractive as this suggestion may sound in abstract, after all it would make it much easier to promote God's law within a secularized culture, it is clear that the suggestion cannot be defended in the face of particular textual and theological realities. For instance, the two texts rehearsed above are specifically worded so as to require more than just any kind of punishment for those who practice witchcraft and bestiality. What is prohibited in Exodus 22.18 is that a witch should be allowed to live. A magistrate who merely finds a witch, i.e. a genuine witch as biblically understood, would transgress this prohibition, allowing thereby what the text forbids, namely, for allowing a witch to live. Exodus 22.19 used an idiomatic Hebrew expression to communicate the certainty of the death penalty for someone committing bestiality. Quote, shall surely be put to death, End quote. The whole point here is that the crime is so heinous that only the death penalty is its just recompense. The arbitrariness of some commentators here is perplexing. For example, R.A. Cole writes, quote, our attitude to perversions of God's natural order can hardly vary from those of the law while our treatment of offenders will be very different today, end quote. Yet the Hebrew text teaches that our treatment of this crime must not vary. Surely such an offender is to be put to death. If that is not the justice which we endorse, then indeed even our attitude towards the perversion itself is varied from that prescribed by God's law. Someone might convincingly argue that the method of execution, for example stoning, is a variable cultural detail. But the text simply will not support the thesis that the law's penal sanctions are culturally variable. It will not support teaching an open-ended approach to penology, that is, teaching simply that the criminals should be punished, without saying what the punishment should be. The principle taught in such case laws is that the relevant crimes are worthy of this or that specified treatment. The various alternatives for treatment may not be changed around, as though a murderer could be fined and a thief could be executed. It is precisely the equity of God's penal sanctions which precludes any shifting of them around, Yet this shifting of penalties is what the suggestion before us would allow, by saying that the case law teaches no set sanction, but only that there should be some kind of sanction. Such shifting violates the principle of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life, etc. We have already seen above that equity characterizes the penal sanctions of God's law. Crimes have meted out to them precisely what justice says they deserve. This is the biblical approach to penology, and to depart from it is to welcome, in principle, arbitrariness, tyranny, and injustice to one's society. No more, no less. No more, no less. Biblical penalties, we are observing, are never too lenient and never too stringent for the cases which they address. Consequently, if a magistrate departs from the strict justice and equity of the biblically prescribed penalties for crimes, then the magistrate must either require more or require less than the law of God. Either way, he will depart from the norm of equity, meeting out what a crime deserves, and thus will be unjust in his judgments, by being either too hard or too easy on criminals. Hebrews 2, two tells us, contrary to the mistaken assumption of many, that the Old Testament penal sanctions were not heightened or intensified punishments, going beyond what strict justice for society would dictate. The verse declares, as foundational to an a fortiori argument for the eternal justice of God towards apostates, that according to the Mosaic Law, the words spoken through angels, Acts 7.53, Quote, "Every transgression and offense received a just recompense of reward end quote. God's penalties were not overbearing there, and thus his judgment must be seen as fair towards apostates as well. God never punishes in an unjust manner one that is too lenient or too harsh. He always prescribes exactly what equity demands. He can be counted on to stipulate a just recompense of reward for every crime. Those who depart from God's penal sanctions, then, are the ones who are unjust. If God says that some crime is to be punished by the magistrate with death, then the crime in question is indeed worthy of death, to use the biblical phrase, for example, Deuteronomy 21 22. One of the strongest endorsements of the justice of the law's penal sanctions is found in the words of the Apostle Paul at Acts twenty-five eleven, When he was accused of many grievous things by the Jews, Paul responded, quote, if I am an evildoer, the same expression in romans thirteen four and have committed anything worthy of death, the law's designation for a capital crime, then I refuse not to die. End quote. Paul did not argue that these Old Testament penal sanctions had been abrogated, nor that they were appropriate only for the Jews of the theocracy. He rather insisted that they applied at the present time, and he would not seek to avert their requirement. He was willing to submit to divine justice, the justice of God's law, provided, of course, that he had truly transgressed that law. We, too, endorse the justice of God's penal code if the Bible is to be the foundation for our Christian political ethic. Invalid Attempts to Sidestep Biblical Penology Some Christians have attempted to escape the biblical requirements regarding penal sanctions on crime. Without answering the positive considerations which have been laid out above, they have suggested various reasons why we should not endorse the penal sanctions of the Old Testament law. We can quickly survey some of these reasons. Some say that the use of the death penalty would cut short the possibilities for evangelism. That may be true, but we must avoid portraying God's word as in conflict with itself, as though the evangelistic commission of the church could override the justice demanded by the state. Quote, "...the secret things, for example, who will be converted, belong unto Jehovah our God, but the things that are revealed, for example, the law's requirements, belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law." Quote. Deuteronomy 29.29 Others appeal to emotion, saying that the penal sanctions of the Old Testament would lead to a bloodbath in modern society. Such a consideration is by its nature a pragmatic concern rather than a consideration for truth and justice. But more importantly, it directly contradicts the Bible's own teaching as to what the effect would be of following God's penal code. Far from leading to numerous more executions, such a practice would make others hear and fear, for example Deuteronomy 17.13, so that few will commit such crimes and need to be punished. God's sanctions bring safety, protection, integrity, and life to a community, not a bloodbath. Some teachers have likened the Old Testament penal sanctions the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament no longer followed in the same way as they were previously because of the work of Christ. However, such penalties were not ceremonial in character foreshadowing the person and work of the Redeemer, for example like the sacrificial system. They were not redemptive in purpose or religious in character. While the New Testament shows that the sacrifices, temple, etc. have been laid aside, the New Testament endorses the continuing use and authority of the penal sanctions. They simply are not in the same theological category as the ceremonial laws. The social penalties prescribed by the Old Testament law cannot be seen as fulfilled in the death of Christ, the excommunicating discipline of the church or the final judgment, for none of these deal with social justice within history. Christ did not remove the penalties for social misdeeds or else Christians could argue that they need not pay traffic fines. The discipline of the church does not remove the need for the state to have just guidelines for penalties in society. And far from confirming social penalties, waiting for the final judgment removes social penalties for crime altogether. Even if one could argue, with biblical indicators, that the penal sanctions of the Old Testament foreshadowed the final judgment, it would be something else to argue that those penalties did nothing else but foreshadow final judgment. After all, they also dealt with historical matters of crime and punishment, and so they could continue to do so today, while still foreshadowing the coming final judgment. May we abrogate all but one. If the above arguments have proven awkward in light of biblical teaching and logical consistency, one can understand how much more difficult it would be to defend the position that the penal sanctions have been abrogated today, except for one, namely the death penalty for murder. Such a position fails to show that the penal sanctions have been laid aside in general. At best, it appeals to a fallacious argument from silence, saying that such social penalties were not mentioned, for instance, by Paul when he spoke to the Corinthian church about an incestuous fornicator. Of course, neither did Paul dispute those sanctions, seeing that he was speaking to the church about its response to the sinner, not the magistrate's response. Does his silence challenge or support the validity of the sanctions? Neither, really, for a consideration of silence is logically fallacious. What is important is the presumption of continuing validity taught elsewhere by Christ. Matthew 5.19 and Paul in Acts 25.11, Romans 13.4, 1 Timothy 1, verses 8-10, through 10, Hebrews 2, two. Silence cannot defeat that presumption, for the presumption can be turned back only by a definite word of abrogation. Conclusion There is no general repudiation of the penal sanctions in the New Testament, and if there were there would be no textually legitimate way to salvage the penalty for murder. The attempt to limit our moral obligation to the Noahic Covenant, Genesis 9-6, is misconceived not only because the New Testament recognizes no such arbitrary limitation, see Matthew five seventeen 17-19, but also because the Mosaic Law is necessary to understand and apply fairly the Noahic stipulation about murderers. For example, the distinction between manslaughter and murder is not drawn in Genesis 9. That Paul in Romans 13 was not limiting the power of the sword to the guidance of Genesis 9 is clear from the fact that Paul recognizes the right of taxation, which is unmentioned in Genesis 9. If the Old Testament sanctions have been abrogated, and we have no reason to think that they have been, then there appears to be no way to salvage the death penalty for murder either. Yet very few evangelicals will content to accept that conclusion, especially since it leaves Paul's words about the magistrate's sword without any application. We must conclude that God's word, even concerning matters of crime and punishment, is dependable and unchanging. Without his guidance, the magistrate would indeed wield the sword in vain. Chapter 27. Church and State quote, It is in fact impossible not to have some religious presuppositions whenever a lawmaker takes a stand one way or another on an issue. End quote. We have observed that a distinctively Christian position with respect to law and politics will call for a promoting the comprehensive gospel advocated by the Reformed faith, a gospel which has political implications because Christ has established God's kingdom with its influence in every area of life, and now rules as king of kings over all mankind. True believers pray that God's kingdom will more and more come to expression through history, and that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Study of scripture has shown that God's will for public justice and politics has been revealed in the permanent standards of God's law. Therefore, Christians ought to work to persuade others of their obligation to the commandments of God, including the civil magistrate of his duty to enforce the penal sanctions of God's law against criminal activity in society. Without God's law, the Christian may take an interest in politics, but he has nothing to contribute in the way of concrete guidance that could not just as well be contributed by autonomous social wisdom. God's law is the key, then, to the Christian attitude toward political morality. A complaint which is often heard in our secularized society, and even heard from Christians who have succumbed to the pressures of secularization, is that we cannot recognize God's law as the standard for political morality because of the separation of church and state. We need to explore this complaint from many angles in order to see just how weak it is. The Separation in the Old Testament First of all, there are people who reject God's law as the standard for present-day political ethics because they believe that the Old Testament social arrangement did not, as we do today, recognize any separation of church and state. The thought seems to be this. Since the Mosaic Law was intended for a situation wherein church and state were merged, those commandments would be ethically inappropriate for a different situation like ours where church and state are separated. This line of thought may be common, but it is invalid nonetheless. We can begin by taking note of the fact that the Old Testament surely did recognize many kinds of separation between the cultic religions and civil political aspects of life. Kings were not priests in Old Testament Israel and priests were not civil leaders, as in the pagan cultures around Israel. Indeed, when a king like Uzziah presumed to take upon himself the religious tasks of a priest, he was struck with leprosy from God for daring to break down the recognized separation of church and state, Second Chronicles 26, verses 16-21. There was a clear difference between the office and prerogatives of Moses and Aaron between those of Nehemiah and Ezra. The Old Testament social arrangement did not then merge the religious cult and the civil administration we read that Jehoshaphat set the chief priest over the people in all the king's matters, 2 Chronicles 19.11. A functional separation between king and priest, both answerable to God, was known and followed. Thus kings and priests had different houses, different officers, different treasuries, different regulations, and different forms of discipline to impose. The alleged merger of church and state in the Old Testament is simply based on the little familiarity with Old Testament realities as presented in Scripture. Recently it has been suggested by one Old Testament seminary instructor that the membership of the Old Testament Jewish state was coextensive with that of the Old Testament Jewish church. For he claims, circumcision and participation in the Passover were required of all citizens in Israel. Despite prima facie forced to this suggestion, we will find it acceptable only if we neglect to read the actual biblical account of the Old Testament social situation. As a matter of fact, there were indeed citizens of Israel, members of the state, who were not circumcised, bearing the mark of belonging to the covenant community, namely the women. But even more importantly, there were men in Israel who enjoyed the privileges and protections of citizenship, and yet who were not members of the church, who were not circumcised and did not partake of the redemptive meal of Passover. These were the sojourners in Israel. They had the same law, Leviticus twenty four twenty two, the same privileges, Leviticus nineteen thirty three and 34, as native Israelite. But unless they were willing to undergo circumcision and join the religious community, they did not take Passover, Exodus 12, 43, verse 45 and 48. In many ways, this parallels the situation today. All men live under the same laws and privileges in our state, but only those who assume the covenant sign, baptism in the New Testament, would be members of the church and free to take the Lord's Supper, the redemptive meal. Even at this level, we do not find a situation in ancient Israel that is altogether different from our own. Church and state were not merged in any obvious way in Old Testament times. Of course, there were many unique aspects to the situation enjoyed by the Old Testament Israelites. In many ways, their social arrangement was not what ours is today. And the extraordinary character of Old Testament Israel may very well have pertained to some aspect of the relation between religious cult and civil rule in the Old Testament. Nevertheless, we will search in vain to find any indication in the Scripture that the validity of the Mosaic law for society somehow depended upon any of these extraordinary features of the Old Testament social arrangement. Despite the uniqueness of Israel, its law code was held forth as a model for other nations to imitate. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verses 6 through 8. What was not extraordinary or unique was the justice embodied in the law of God its validity was universal, applying even to nations which did not in every respect parallel the social or church-state situation in Israel. Consequently, even if we were to point out that today our social arrangement differs somewhat from that of Old Testament Israel's, we would not thereby be justified in concluding that the law revealed to Israel is not morally valid for our present-day society. Whatever the precise church-state relation was in Israel, the law revealed to Israel ought to be obeyed even by societies which have a slightly different church-state relation today. A consideration of the separation of church and state, or lack thereof, in Old Testament Israel does not, then, invalidate the authority of the Old Testament law for current American society. Christ taught that we should render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. Matthew twenty-two twenty-one. There is a difference between Caesar and God, to be sure, and we must obey both with that distinction in mind. And yet, while we owe obedience to the powers that be, Romans 13, verses 1 and 2, the civil magistrate owes allegiance to God's revealed will, for he is the minister of God, Romans 13, 4. To admit that the church is separate from the state is not the same as saying that the state is separated from obligation to God himself and his rule. Both church and state, as separate institutions with separate functions, i.e. the church mercifully ministers the gospel, while the state justly ministers public law by the sword, swerve under the authority of God, the creator, sustainer, king, and judge of all mankind in all aspects of their lives. Different Senses of this Separation When people today speak of their commitment to the separation of church and state, we need to realize that this commitment can be taken or interpreted in many ways. Quote, I believe in the separation of church and state, end quote, may be the answer to one or more logically distinct questions. For instance, we might ask whether the church should dominate the state, for example, the pope dictating to kings, or the state should dominate the church, for example, Congress dictating church policy. And the answer might very well be that we should hold to the separation of church and state, namely that neither institution should dominate the other. We should have a free church and a free state. A second question might be whether the state should establish one denomination over others as the state church or tax the population for financial support of the ministers of one particular church or denomination and the answer again might very well be that we should hold to the separation of church and state namely that all churches should be supported simply by voluntary offerings and one denomination should not be favored above others by the state This, as a matter of historical fact, is what the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution laid down when it prohibited the establishment of religion. It did not prohibit the expression of religiously based views by politicians or their supporters, nor did it prohibit obedience to the Bible by public officials. It merely prohibited the establishment of one denomination as the state church. Finally, in recent days, it has come to be asked whether a distinctive religious system or revelation should be the standard for individual lawmakers as they determine public policy. In previous ages, people would have been wise enough to see through such a question, for it is in fact impossible not to have some religious presuppositions whenever a lawmaker takes a stand one way or another on an issue. The only question should be which religious beliefs ought to guide him, not whether religious beliefs should guide him. However, today, those who favor the pseudo-ideal of religious neutrality when it comes to politics tend to express their position as a commitment to the separation of church and state. By this, they mean the separation of morality, or religiously based morality, from the state. They favor instead secular or autonomous laws in society. Those who believe that magistrates are bound to the law of God are mistakenly accused of violating the separation of church and state, which should mean the separation of two institutions and functions. Conclusion. We must be careful to understand how people are using their terms. The Christian who promotes obedience to the law of God within his society is not violating any biblical understanding of the separation of church and state. Indeed, it is hoped that believers would strongly advocate such a separation, meaning that neither institution should dominate the other in any official capacity, and that no denomination should be established as the state church. However, the Christian may very well be violating the separation of church and state when Secular humanism uses that as a catchphrase for religious neutrality in public policy. But at that point, our concern is not for loyalty to an ambiguous slogan, but for loyalty to the King of Kings. Quote, Let God be true, though every man is a liar. End quote. Romans 3 4. We must be faithful to Scripture's requirements, including the obligation of the civil magistrate to God's law, rather than to the popular dictates of our age. In short, quote, we must obey God rather than men. End quote.
1: and his kingdom